First Peter chapter 1. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? America was founded as a Christian nation. People have different views on that. Some would say, absolutely. Look at our founding fathers. They were overwhelmingly Christians. That's what they would have called themselves. They were not deists. A uh, few of them were, but they claimed to be Christians. Um, or, or look at the writings of the writings and, and the legal documents, the contracts and the compacts before our country was founded, and then the writings during and after our country was founded. And you'll see that, that they're soaked with biblical thinking and with a Judeo-Christian worldview. It, it was the, the, the worldview in which those founders operated. It could be argued that the American experiment was always supposed to have taken place within a framework of Judeo-Christian morality and belief, that that, that's how it was supposed to function, that you take that framework away and it doesn't work. Others might disagree. They might argue that the American experiment has more to do with the Enlightenment than with Christianity or with the writings of John Locke rather than the writings of the Apostle Paul or any other biblical author. Some might even question the concept of a Christian nation. I mean, isn't a Christian a person who follows Jesus? A Christian really isn't a political philosophy, is it? And so there might be pushback at a theoretical level. And so people, you know, discuss these things and debate them. But let me give you another proposition, and I suspect there'll be a lot more unity around this one. Agree or disagree, America is a Christian nation today. Whatever we once were, however we were founded, whatever the intent was of our wise founding fathers, it seems we have drifted far and moved far from our original construction. Um, What used to be commonly understood as right and wrong is now flipped on its head, and right has become wrong, and wrong has become right. And in fact, to, to live according to biblical morality today often seems immoral to our culture increasingly, and in various sectors. Um, Think about uh, uh, assumptions about God and about the world, and those have changed. People are biblically illiterate today. You know, it used to be, in fact, you go back far enough, the Bible was taught in public schools. Everybody kind of knew the Bible stories, but today, you know, kids today in in the culture, they, they know nothing about the Bible, even the most basic things about it. Besides Jesus being my homeboy t-shirts, I mean, where, what do people know about Jesus? And so whatever we once were, it, that has shifted. We have truly begun to enter a post-Christian culture, and that shift has been happening dramatically fast. Uh, those of you who are here with gray hairs who can remember way back in the old days, you can tell us how quickly that shift has happened and how precipitously the culture has moved in its values and its worldview. And as I talk to Christians, as I think about it myself, I think a lot of Christians are disoriented by this. It's it's confusing. We don't have any experience in this kind of culture, being a Christian in this kind of context. And so we're like, what are the rules? How does this work? What are we supposed to do? And there's a lot of fear and disorientation. Well, there's a bright side. There is a silver lining to this cloud. And that is, the more that we find ourselves as Christians to be moral minorities, worldview minorities, religious minorities in our culture, 
the more our experience is like that of the New Testament church. And the more our experience is like what most Christians experience around the world today. You know, most Christians in the world are used to being spiritual, religious, and moral minorities in their culture. We're kind of the, the, the exception, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, I'm just saying that's the fact. Well, this morning we're looking at 1 Peter. We're beginning a sermon series this fall in 1 Peter, and Peter was written, the book of 1 Peter was written to help the church think through what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to live for Him in a hostile cultural context. To what, it lo- what it looks like to live for Jesus when following Jesus is the minority position, not the majority cultural position. And so, so really, First Peter is a reflection in some ways on Christ in culture and that, that uh, you know, ancient discussion of how Christians should relate to the culture around them, but specifically it's guidance and wisdom when we find ourselves at odds with the view of the culture around us. And so I think 1 Peter is an incredibly timely book for us. It's something we need. It's, it's a book that speaks to our hearts and has spoken to the hearts of Christians down through the centuries precisely for that reason. So I want to introduce this book to you today. I want to look at just the first two verses Um, But I want to look at these verses as kind of an introduction to the whole book. So my hope today is that that you would walk away from this sermon with a kind of a general sense of what 1 Peter is about, and that you would be excited and motivated to study 1 Peter. I mean, maybe you'll you'll pick up one of those uh, 1 Peter study guides uh, out at the growth group table, or if you haven't joined a growth group yet, maybe this will kind of motivate you to join a growth group, because a lot of our growth groups, we, they study the sermon text during the week, and then we come together on Sunday. So it's a chance to kind of dig into this material. But let's look at 1 Peter verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The first thing you have to know about the book of First Peter is it's not a book. It's actually a letter. And in ancient letters, the first thing you wrote at the top of the letter was the person sending the letter. And so we have the sender there in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with Peter. Maybe you've heard about him a little bit. There was Jesus. He had his 12 disciples, and, and one of the disciples was Peter. And Peter was kind of the first among equals. He was, well, he, he, at least he was the one who was always mouthing off. So he, he was always the one sticking his foot in it. And so he kind of became the leader because he talked a lot. I don't know. Um, but, but he was the one that when the church was born, yeah, he gave the first sermon. He was the one who was a leader in the church. And so throughout his life, he, he was a revered apostle. And he's writing to Christians, and you'll see where they're located. It says in verse 1, they're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I'm sure all of you are well up on your ancient Roman territories. But for the one or two of you here who are lost on those place names, uh, think, think of a world map today. Think of the country of Turkey. And then imagine kind of northern and especially northeastern Turkey. That's where those areas were. 
Um, and so they were part of the Roman Empire, but at that time it would have been kind of the sort of the far corners of the empire, sort of the backwaters of the Roman Empire. So, so not at the centers of power, but kind of out there at the periphery. But what's really interesting to me and what I want us to look at is how Peter addresses these Christians. He calls them, in verse 1, God's elect strangers in the world. That's an interesting pairing, isn't it? God's elect strangers in the world. I like how the English Standard Version, which is another English translation, uh, translates that phrase. And it, This is a good translation too, but another way you could translate it, it says, to those who are elect exiles. I like that, elect exiles. What, what an interesting juxtaposition of concepts where God's elect, God's chosen us, but we're rejected by the world. We're citizens of heaven who are living as expats and foreigners and strangers and exiles in this world. We're saved. God has saved us. But we're strangers in this world. And so there's a tension in the Christian experience between the favor and the love and the strong identity of belonging to God, not because we're anything, but because of what Jesus did for us, and then that being fused with, we don't fit in, we don't belong, we're not citizens here anymore. And I'd like to argue that that is a lens through which we can read the entire book of, or letter of 1 Peter, that, that it's, it's kind of a, the, the controlling understanding that guides Peter's thinking. And so throughout this letter, he's going to be touching on both of these themes, that we're God's elect, that God has saved us, that if you're a Christian, you're so blessed. And guess what? If you're a Christian, it's going to be real tough because you don't belong here. And so holding that together seems to be the theme of 1 Peter. But I'd like to even go further this morning and suggest that that concept of elect exiles is not only the theme of 1 Peter, but I think it's essential for living faithfully in a post-Christian culture. As we're trying to figure out what do we do in this brave new world that seems to have come upon us in a decade, just like that, what do we do in this? And I think the first step is we need to understand ourselves rightly that we are elect exiles. So let me unpack those two concepts, elect and exile, and hopefully that'll give us a little bit of a way forward. Let's start with the the phrase elect, to God's elect. It means God's chosen ones, those whom God has set his favor upon. If, If you're a Christian, it means that God has graciously selected you and chosen you and he loves you and his favor is on you. That really comes out in verse 2, doesn't it? As Peter goes on to explain them. He says, God's elect, look at verse 2, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. So do you see, you probably picked up there, the whole Trinity is there. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is there. So, so to be a Christian, to be chosen, is, is to be someone in whom God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has, has 
selected and set his affection and his love and his saving grace upon you. It's awesome. (laughs) You know, I mean, just think about this. We've been chosen according to the, let's break it down, the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, God didn't choose us because we won a beauty contest. God didn't choose us because he looked out to see who were the best of the best in the world and he picked the best and the brightest. You know, Christians aren't like the, aren't the special forces of all the moral people in the world, you know. He just, before time, he, he chose us, he foreknew us. And that word foreknowledge in Peter's, we'll see later in the chapter, it, it doesn't mean merely knowing something in advance. It really means to choose in advance. You know, the idea of knowing someone in the Bible it has an idea of relationship to it. It's, it's a deep and profound word. God started a relationship with us before we ever, ever even existed. He set his heart on us. Through, look at the next phrase, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us? That's kind of a churchy Bible word, right? Well, it just means that, that we're holy, that we're set apart for God. That, that's what the word sanctify means. It's from the Latin word sanctus, which just means holy. So, so the, the Holy Spirit has set us apart for God. We, we belong to Him. We're His special people. You, you know, kids, it's like, it's like when you go in your parents' bedroom, you know, and you, you know, they're not there, and you're, there's like your parents' drawers and things, and you're like, should I touch those things? I know I'm not supposed to. That's mom and dad's special stuff. You know, and you're, you're tempted to look at it, but like, oh, that's mom and dad's stuff. That's, it's kind of set apart. It's holy. It's special. You're not supposed to touch. You're not supposed to touch those things. Uh, it's holy. That's the idea of, of what holy means. It means something that's set apart and distinct and set apart for God's special uses. And so, when God has saved us, He's He's chosen us, and now He's set us apart for Himself. We're distinct and separate. We're not just like everything else, and and we're set apart for what? Look at the third one: for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we're set apart for, is to love and obey Jesus. We don't obey the culture anymore. We don't obey our own sinful impulses that are always popping up and trying to get us to react and act in certain ways. We don't obey that anymore. We don't obey the the tapes that have been drilled into our head from childhood about this is what you do and this is how it is. We, We don't obey those tapes. We obey Jesus. We don't obey the conventional wisdom. When you're at school, you don't obey your friends. When they say, hey, let's do this. Like, we're here to obey Jesus. We've been chosen, set apart to obey Jesus and to be, look at verse uh, 2 there, sprinkled by his blood. We were saying about the blood of Jesus this morning and how it cleanses us and it forgives us and it makes us his. Or here's another way to think about this special choosing. All of that language there about being chosen and sanctified and obedience and sprinkling, that's really, if you want to think about it this way, it's language that was applied to Israel in the Old Testament. And so there's another thread we're going to find in 1 Peter. If you're kind of thinking about the threads that run through 1 Peter, one of the ones that happens again and again is that the prophecies and promises and titles and phrases applied to Israel in the Old Testament are now applied to the church in the New Testament as the new Israel, the new people of God, the new chosen people, who now to be the chosen people of God, the question isn't, are you descended from Abraham or not? The question is, do you believe in Jesus or not? It's just the new defining characteristic of God's people. 
And so look at that. It's, it's Israel language. Israel was chosen out of the nations. Out of all the nations on earth, God chose them and selected them to be his special people. And they were sanctified. Israel was to be a holy nation. They had different rules. They had different laws. They weren't like everybody else. They didn't worship the way the nations worshiped. They didn't follow the practices of the nations. Well, they weren't supposed to, but they did. But they were supposed to be special and set apart. And then look at this language of obedience and sprinkling. Most scholars think, and it seems right to me, that this language of obedience and sprinkling is actually, if you remember, if you're familiar with the Bible story a little bit, when Moses was going up to Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments to Israel, there was this scene where they all had to commit themselves to follow God. And so they they had to pledge themselves to God's covenant, and then Moses took blood, and he went around, and he sprinkled the people as they were made this covenant with God. And so it is that we have entered a new covenant, but it's not obedience to the law of Moses. It's obedience to Jesus Christ, the true Moses. And it was not the sprinkling of lambs and goats and bulls, but the sprinkling of his own blood that forgives us and cleanses us from our sins. And so we're his special people. Just as Israel was a special people, that's a foreshadowing of how in Christ we've now become God's chosen people, set apart, distinct and holy. And if we're going to live faithfully in a post-Christian culture, we've got to get the identity thing right. We've got to get the identity thing down. Who are you? I am God's elect. Not because of anything I've done, but because of his great mercy and kindness to me. Or in other words, we need to get ourselves ready to be different. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a post-Christian culture, is embrace the fact that you are going to be different (laughs) if you're going to be faithful. You're going to be weird. You won't look like the rest. You won't act like the rest. You won't talk like everybody else. And we have to brace ourselves for that because none of us like sticking out. I mean, some some do, but most, you know... (laughs) Most people like to, you know, go with the flow and blend in and not have people look at them and question them and push back on them. But if we're going to be God's chosen people, we're going to have to prepare ourselves to live a different kind of life. And and what should make us stick out, what should make us different is holiness and love and the character of Jesus. The thing that makes us different as Christians isn't that we have a Christian accent or that we wear Christian garb or something. The thing that makes us different is the character of our lives. I love Godwin's prayer earlier about God changing us from, you know, anger to patience and from uh, selfishness to, to humility. And, and that's, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's going to stand out differently from the culture. So, for instance, let's just thumb our way through First Peter a little bit. Look back at your Bible. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't just do what your gut tells you and what your, your drives tell you. We don't do that anymore. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. We should be marked by holiness. Or look down at verse 22. He says, now that you have 
purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. So we should love each other. We should be marked as a community of love. We should be marked as a, there should be a note of grace in all that we do, a note of, of kindness and love in our, us as a church. Or look at chapter 4. Just one more example of this distinct life. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 2. It says, as a result, he, talking about a Christian, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires. We're, we're not driven by, you know, uh, the idolatry of, of drugs and alcohol and food and, and lust and... Uh, you know, ego and, and climbing the ladder of success. That's not how we define ourselves anymore. We're not, drive, we're not driven by those things. Rather, we live for the will of God. Verse 3, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. We did all that. We're done with that. Now, verses 7 to 9, or verse, uh, yeah, look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. It's a totally different kind of life that God has called us to. So what should make you distinct as Christians is the holiness and the love and the humility of your life. You know, if you're at the kids at the lunch table at school, the thing that's going to make you distinct isn't the fact that you wear a cross necklace or cross earrings. Nothing wrong with wearing a cross necklace and cross earrings. It's fine. Do it. But that's not what makes us distinct. What makes us distinct is, is that we don't join in with the ridicule and mockery of the kind of loser kid at the end of the table. And when the kids are going out, you know, getting wasted on the weekend and, and sleeping around and all that, you're not doing that. You, you have a different life. You have different values. What makes us distinct as Christians isn't that at work you have a big Bible sitting on your desk. You could put a big Bible on your desk. Actually, it might be cool. It might be a good way of starting a conversation. But that's not what makes us distinct. What makes us distinct at work is how we serve our coworkers and how we put them first, and how we're not trying to stab everyone in the back and, and manipulate things to push ourselves ahead, but we're trusting God with our, our lives and our careers. We're, we're, doing, we're marching to a different drummer, beat of a different drummer. What makes us distinct is, is when we're in the chemo ward and we're sitting in the, the recliner getting chemo next to someone else, our mouths are filled with praises, Joy, we're praising God. And, and when we're grieving the loss of our spouse or we're struggling with a child who's just being stubborn or whatever it is, or you're struggling with parents who are being difficult, whatever, we have praise and joy and we're worshiping the Lord in the midst of it. And we have hope. There's a note of hope in our life. That's what's going to make us dis- different and distinct as God's holy people. So how distinct are you? How much do you stick out? Or do you blend in pretty well? Have you learned the fine art of being Christian around Christians and being worldly around the world? 
Or, or have you decided to be the same person, whether you're at work or whether you're at school or whether you're at home or whether you're texting or whether whatever? Are, are you the same person? Are you a distinct, set-apart person whom Christ has saved and rescued? How distinct are you? It's, we're going to have to be distinct, and we're going to have to be okay with that in a post-Christian society. I think sometimes there's a temptation, and the temptation is that, that as a culture drifts and, and changes and moves, that in order to, to help people know about Jesus, we have to kind of give in to that shift and that, that move. There's always the temptation to change our, our standards and to change our beliefs and our morality in order to, to not seem so out of step with the culture. You know, if, if you're trying to stand with Jesus and the culture is moving this way, you're going to look increasingly like some kind of alien and, and out of step. You're not going to look cool. And as we all know, the most important thing today is to be cool. <laughs> it's to fit in and have people like us and have lots of Facebook friends and a million followers on Twitter and lots of views on our YouTube. And, and this is the important thing, right? So it's hard to stand firm and to be distinct. I even think this is going to be critical to our evangelism moving forward. How do we share the gospel in a post-Christian culture? I think we start by being different. I actually think that, that even though our impulse is, how do we fit in, how do we fit in and chase the culture, I, I think we say, no, 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 this is what Christ means for us. This is how we live differently. This is how our families are different. This is how I handle my life differently. And, and let the distinction grow. Be, be peculiar people. Because, you know, where is, our, where is the culture going as it moves away from the Lord? It's, it's going to death and destruction, you know? To live apart from the Lord is to bring ruin and misery upon your family and upon your life. So, you know, let's do a new American experiment. We will follow the Lord. You follow whatever. And we'll see how it shakes out. And we'll be here, not going, but with our arms wide open saying, are are you done yet? You know, like parents, like come back to the Lord. And and as there's a disintegration in our culture and as as people begin to reap the whirlwind for living against God's laws and, and they find instead of the freedom from God that they thought they would find and the freedom to be themselves, instead they're finding misery and brokenness. We want to be the light that's still shining, saying, there's hope. Come back to the Lord. There's grace. And so I think a key part of our evangelistic effectiveness in a post-Christian culture will actually be in our courage to be distinct morally, to be a distinct kind of community where something really different is happening here than is happening anyplace else, even different than what's happening in people's families and their homes that there would be a love and a service and a humility and a holiness and a purity here that will become attractive as the darkness grows more dark. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you know, someone brought you here, someone invited you here, and we really are glad you're here. And we're really not here like a bunch of high and mighty, looking down our nose kind of people. You, You know, this is like a refugee camp here. We're a bunch of refugees who have lived the way the world has lived, and it has broken us, and it has shamed us, and it has dirtied us, 
and we have found forgiveness. We found new life in Jesus. He's, he's, he's forgiven us and he's given us a new life and he's, he's putting our lives back together. And it's a messy, slow, painful process. But, but we're, we're refugees from the world who are having our lives reassembled by God's grace. And we just want to say to you, like, there's more room for you in the chosen people of God. All the seats are not taken yet. You can come. You can find that, that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy in Christ that we have found. But you've got to move toward Jesus. You've got to put your hope in Him. You need to receive a sprinkling by His blood and commit yourself to the Lord. We're chosen. We're elect. We're distinct. We belong to God. We need to embrace that. You're going to be different. That's normal. But here's the other part of the equation, right? Going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. We're God's elect, but we're also strangers in the world. That's the other side of it. We're exiles in the world. You could translate that, you know, expats. We're foreigners. We're aliens. We're, we, we don't belong here. This isn't our home culture. We're in another place. That's, that's a, a strange way to think of ourselves, especially if we've always grown up here, you know, and, and we think, well, this is where I live you know, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around what it's going to mean potentially to, to move to a different country and live as an expat where all the cultural rules are different and I don't know what they are and I've got to figure out why people do what they do. So we're, we're, we're exiles. We, we're citizens of heaven, but we live here on earth. Or to think about it another way, we're again like Israel. Israel, we're, they, they had an experience of being exiles that they for a time lived outside of the promised land when they were exiled into Babylon. And it's really, again, really important that we get this part too because sometimes when you're moving into a post-Christian culture out of a Christian cultural context and we think, what do we do? One of our reactions is, we fight. You know, we draw swords. We take back the culture by force. And we launch into the culture war. And... I mean, there's some truth to that. We should always stand up for the truth. We should always speak our minds politically, especially in a democracy. We should always say what's right and what's wrong and not be afraid to engage with those kinds of discussions. But let's, make, let's be clear that the mission of the church is not to wage a culture war. That's all I'm saying. Even though we as Christians need to be involved in the culture and salt and light and all that, that that's not our calling as a church just to somehow wrestle this culture back to Jesus, even though we pray that God would do that by His grace, and for we pray for revival. But that's not our mission, because we're not Israel living in the promised land. Is there a promised land coming for us? Yes. But it's not when we get the right person in office in 2016. You know, sometimes we think that. Once we elect whoever, then it'll be good. Like, that's not the promised land is not a political deliverance. The promised land for us is when? When Jesus Christ returns in great power and great glory at the end of the age. Then we'll be Israel going into the promised land of a new heavens and a new earth. But until then, we are Israel living in exile. In fact, look at this. This is so interesting. Turn to chapter 5, verse 13. Here's Peter ending the letter. And at the end of ancient letters, they'd do all these greetings. Hey, so-and-so says hi, and 
you know, Mickey says hi, and Bobby gives you greetings and all that stuff. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Like, what? Babylon? And, and we'll get to that, but most scholars think that Babylon here is actually a reference to Rome. And that she who is sending you greetings is probably the church that's in Rome. Isn't it interesting, though, that he calls Rome Babylon? So it's the exile theme. So at the front of the book and the back of the book, you have the Israel exile motif. So again, we are this, we're like Israel living in exile in Babylon. So now let's put this together. If we're going to live distinctly, holy, loving Christian lives, but we're doing it in Babylon, where people don't have those values all the time and don't see things that way, what's going to happen? It's going to be conflict. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be misunderstanding and, and in some cases, hostility. Not always, but sometimes it'll be there. There will be a marginalization that'll take place. You won't be understood and appreciated naturally because you'll be outside of majority culture. And that's another major theme running through 1 Peter is that these Christians are suffering and Peter's trying to encourage them in their suffering. So, for instance, look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Here's the note of suffering in the book. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. My primary war is not against the culture. It's against my own heart. It's constantly trying to pull me back to the old way of Jeremy's life, the B.C. Jeremy, the before Christ Jeremy, and i got to fight against that. But then look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So live a good life. Understand that in, in, when you're an alien, when you live a good life, people may look at a good life and say that's a sinful life because right is wrong and wrong is right. So, so just accept that. They're you're going to try to live the right way, and people are going to say, that's wrong, that's closed-minded, that's bigoted, that's whatever, that's intolerant. And we're going to be like, no, this is the right thing. No, it's the wrong thing. But just stick with it because someday there's going to be glory when the day he visits us, when Jesus returns. Or look at chapter 2, verses 20 to 24. Look at verse 20. He says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, right, and you endure it, that is commendable before God. Are you ready for this sentence? To this you were called. (laughs) That if you're a Christian, we're called to suffer for doing good, and our response is what? to endure it, to take it, to endure it. Then get this, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Wow. How do we live as as Christians in a post-Christian culture? We, We come back to Jesus and we see that 
He was the Son of God, and He was the Holy One who loved like no man had ever loved, and He lived a perfectly pure, holy, obedient life to God with no sin. The one person that should have been held up as the paragon of of virtue, and instead, He was beaten, and He suffered. And what did He do? He endured it. Verse 22, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And of course, through Jesus' suffering came our salvation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Or just one more. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. What's happening? They don't like us anymore. Hey, don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Hey, the harder it gets, rejoice. Why would I rejoice? You're participating in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of... Has anyone here been insulted for the name of Christ? Snickered at, eyebrow raised, jokes behind your back. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What does it mean to live faithfully in a post-Christian culture? You know, in a post-Christian culture, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. Though we need to believe in Jesus. In a post-Christian culture, it's not enough just to get come to church and love Jesus and sing his praises, though we do that too. In a post-Christian culture, it's not even enough to go out and evangelize people and tell them about Jesus, though we should be all in on that, right? In a post-Christian culture, we must also be ready to suffer with Jesus. In a post-Christian culture, we must count it a privilege to bear the disgrace of Jesus. In a post-Christian culture, we must be ready to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for saving us and cleansing us and washing us from our pasts, for giving us a new heart and a new life. Thank you, Lord, that you are continuing to do that life-changing work in us, teaching us to say no to sin and yes to you. Oh, Lord God, we just thank you that you love us and that you're at work in us. And I just pray for us as a church that we would set our hearts and our minds on Christ, that our hope would be in him and not in this world. 
And Lord, that you would prepare this church, prepare these believers, steal them, strengthen them, give them resolve to live for Christ and to stand no matter what the outcome of that is. Help us, be Lord, to be willing to endure all things for the name of Jesus and for the gospel. And Lord, to do it with joy and to do it with, with delight, not with a, a heavy, sour, scared heart, but with a joyful heart. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone else here this morning who doesn't know you, Jesus, I, I just thank you that they have for, however in your, your sovereign plan, you've brought them to this refugee camp this morning. And I pray, God, that you would help them to see that they need refuge in Christ, that you would help them to see they need the Savior just like we do. And so, Lord, open their hearts. Have mercy upon them too, just like you've had mercy upon us. Show them that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin and brokenness in us. And, Lord, I pray they'd open their hearts to you and believe. And we ask all these things this morning in the name of Christ. Amen.